Scripture reading this morning is John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That wonderful little passage of Scripture, one of my favorites, almost didn't make it into your Bibles. It's the truth. If you open your Bible, it's likely that you'll find brackets in there. And the footnote at the bottom will say something like, this particular text didn't make it into or was not included in the earliest manuscript of John. Somewhere along the way, this episode was included in the text of John. By the time we get to some of the church fathers that were really important to the church, say, for instance, St. Augustine, he included it and endorsed it. Jerome, who is responsible for the Latin Vulgate, did as well. And from there on out, it's been, for the most part, included as a part of John. Now you say, Bob, that's a strange way to start your sermon, undermining the integrity of the authority of the inspiration of Scripture, right? Sorry. Just lapsed into uh, Southern preacher talk there. I'm not trying to undermine the authority of Scripture. I believe in it. I think it's inspired. I just want to be honest that that particular text didn't always appear in every rendition of John. However, that is not to say that it did not happen. As a matter of fact, it seems very consistent with what we know about Jesus. And furthermore, in John chapter 21, verse 25, which is the last verse of the book of John, John throws this one out. He says, you know what? There's so many things that happened in the life of Jesus in terms of his words and ministry that if I were to try to write them all, It'd be impossible. As a matter of fact, so impossible, there probably are not enough parchments in the world to contain all he did. So, I am so grateful that somebody recovered this story 
and placed it in our canon. Because it's a story, in my opinion, about the heart of Jesus. And it begins, as you know, by Jesus teaching with people all around him. And out of nowhere, while he's teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees bring in a woman caught in adultery. You can almost see it, right? Without being there. They drag her in and they throw her right in the middle because that's where Jesus was. Right in the middle, teaching to all the people. So all the people surrounding this woman and Jesus standing in the middle. And they throw down the gauntlet to Jesus. They say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery and the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Doesn't that sound familiar? Routinely, the scribes and the Pharisees would do this to Jesus. They would try to trap him, put him in a corner. What's the corner? Well, you see, the corner might have been something like this. If Jesus had said, yes, she deserves to be stoned. Let's do it now. Let's execute this woman, which would have been according to the Jewish law of the Sanhedrin. He would have been, in effect, starting an insurrection. Why? Because the Roman law did not allow the Sanhedrin, as important as they were in that culture, to execute people. Only the Roman officials could execute people. So if Jesus had called for that, he would certainly have been more of an insurrectionist than he was already labeled to be. Or if he'd have said, no, we shouldn't stone her. Then he'd been going against the very sacred law of the Jewish canon. He would have been in effect saying the law of Moses is of no account. So what did he do? Jesus is a very interesting figure. I don't know if you ever noticed, when you read the Gospels, he almost never directly answers the critic. I mean, he was better politician than anybody you're going to see, right? They never answered this question straight up. Neither did Jesus. He always turned it on them somehow. So when they said, should she or should she not be executed, Jesus didn't say anything. Instead, he just stooped down to the ground and started to write. I often wonder, did he write with his finger? Did he use a stick? In the dust, he just began to write. Now, while he's down there, The scribes and Pharisees continue to pester him with questions. Basically, should we or should we not? Jesus stands up and he looks at them. And he says, the first one among you who has not sinned, let's get started. Pick up your stone. And then he stooped back down in the ground and continued to write. I mean, can you see this scene? This this is amazing. Now, while he was writing, the text says, one by one, the accusers disappeared. And then he stood up and he addressed the woman in the text for the first time. And he said, woman, Where are those who condemn you? She said, there's no one here left to condemn me. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin 
Remarkable response. Not what anybody expected. I wonder, as many people do, what he wrote in the sand. Been a lot of speculation. One commentator says, maybe he wrote this. Let me read you this. It's, it's from Exodus 23, 1. Maybe while they were accusing this woman, Jesus wrote these words. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Or maybe not. Fact is, we don't know what Jesus wrote. You may have heard me comment on this before. I, I've embraced the theory. It's not based in reality. Because I got no historical evidence. But it's based in my understanding of Jesus. And in this particular episode. See, I wonder if Jesus stooped down on the ground. And he started writing just one word after another. Or maybe this one. The list could go on, couldn't it? Maybe Jesus was just writing sins in the sand. I really don't know what he wrote. But when he was finished... There was no one left. Maybe this is what happened. He wrote those first words in Act 1. And then he stood up and said, Anyone who is not guilty of any sin, these ones, cast the first stone. And then, maybe he stooped back down and he drew a line in the sand. And he started writing words like these. So you don't think I'm singling you out? <laughs> you know those folks, right? They're the pastoral staff. And every one of them would say guilty as charged. Maybe the people watching him write in the sand were terrified that he was going to stop, start connecting the lines. I'll just help you out for me, okay? And then on down. Maybe that's what he did. We don't know. What we do know is what his response was to the woman. Well, first, let's remind ourselves of what he didn't say. He didn't say, I know you didn't do it. It's okay. He probably knew she did it. As a matter of fact, if they were following protocol, legal protocol, they would not have had her there unless there were two witnesses to the same event. The law was rather explicit about it. It said two witnesses seeing two people lying in bed with one another who were not husband and wife making movements that suggested adultery. They caught her. And Jesus didn't say, it's okay, I know you didn't do it. Oh, by the way, did you notice the missing character? There's no man. How interesting. It does take two, you know. 
He wasn't important to their framing this question. It was just a woman caught in adultery. But he didn't say to her, I know you didn't do it. It's okay. You know what else he didn't say to her? He didn't say to her, I know you did it, but it doesn't matter. You know what else he didn't say to her? He didn't say to her, because you're the only one here. And obviously there was another person. You've been framed, so I'm calling a mistrial. He didn't say that either. He said to her, in effect, I know you did it. I know your sin. I know your guilt. Turn away from your life of sin and lead a new life. I do not condemn you. My, my. What a message. When I think of this story, my question is, what do we learn from this particular encounter with Jesus? We'll move on to another one every week. The first thing I consider when I think of this encounter with Jesus is just this. Judgment is more natural than forgiveness. Take a look at the text. It was so easy for them to judge. Well, let's be honest. It was a part of their job. That's what they did. They judged according to the law. But it seems that there was never a thought in their mind, professionally or personally, of pardon, of mercy, of grace, or of restoration. It was just judgment. We really beat up on the Pharisees. We make them the scapegoats for a lot of things. And it seems like it's legitimate because Jesus seems to have done the same. But what we have to admit, don't we, is that it wasn't just natural to judge for them and not to forgive. It's natural for us to judge and not to forgive. Surely you know that's true. Why is um, forgiveness so difficult? Why is it that we move to condemnation and judgment so quickly? There could be a number of reasons, I suppose. But I, I wonder if one of the reasons that we move so quickly to judgment is out of fear. We move to judgment based on fear because if we don't judge it, if we don't call it out, if we don't punish, sin is going to be rampant. Our society is going to be worse than it already is. Our churches are going to be worse than they already are. So we shout and scream and spit and stomp about judgment and condemnation as if that will make the sin go away. Oh, by the way, I'm standing at the epicenter of judging. In the history of the Christian church, this is where it was proclaimed more than anywhere else. This is where preachers like myself stomped and clapped their hands and did all kinds of things with red faces, screaming out against sin and condemning it. Perhaps... Because they thought the louder they shouted, the less likely it would be 
to occur among them. Or maybe the reason it's so much easier to judge than to forgive is because out of fear again, we think if we shout condemnation to the sins that are out there, we ourselves might be less likely to commit them. We put ourselves in the crosshairs publicly and scream and condemn so that we will guard ourselves against the same sins because we know we have the same problem. Maybe that's the reason the judgment is easier than forgiveness. There, there's one wrap-up reason. You know why the Pharisees are so wonderful and used so often? Because sins in society change with society, but this one is always with us. And every time we look at judgmental Pharisees, we see ourselves in the mirror, and that sin never goes away. So judgment is, it seems, more natural than forgiveness. The second thing I learned from this text is that hypocrisy inhibits forgiveness. It stands in the way of it. It is a roadblock. That's why Jesus says, if you haven't sinned, pick up the first stone. You are such hypocrites, you can't even acknowledge the sin in your own life. And if you understood the depth of your own sin, you'd be less likely to judge. He says it on a variety of other occasions too. On one occasion, he says to people who are all wrapped up in judgment, he says, I got an idea for you. Instead of trying to take the little speck or splinter out of your brother's eye, how about if you remove that great big, bigger than two by four beam from your own eye? Because if you don't take that one out, you can't even see the speck. Hypocrisy always eclipses and inhibits forgiveness. There's a third thing uh, from the story I think we learn. And that is forgiveness. It must be accepted. To fully understand it, it must be embraced. Forgiveness is not an idea. It's an experience. If we don't accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we're suggesting that we don't need it. If we don't accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we also might be suggesting that we can fix it. If we don't accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ unequivocally for our sins, we somehow think we can earn acceptance and forgiveness. None of which is true. If I have sinned against you, and you offer me the gift of forgiveness and I refuse to take it up as your gift, I've insulted you. I've said you're not worth it. I've said I don't need it because I didn't sin against you. And the same thing is true with Jesus. 
you don't accept his forgiveness, in effect, you're saying, I don't need it. I'm good. Now, why do I say that? Because it's hard to accept forgiveness sometimes. Sometimes we just refuse. Other times we know we need to, but we somehow can't. I've seen this story repeated over and over again. But I remember one particular time where it was very poignant for me. A woman sat at a table and looked at a man who had abused her. And she pulled out a letter in my presence, probably because she didn't think she could say the words without reading them. And it was a letter of forgiveness. I forgive you. You know the other part of the story? The man sitting at the table didn't receive it because he wouldn't admit his sin. Question, who's the loser in that story? That woman walks away free and he's bound by unforgiveness. A forgiveness he would not receive because he would not admit his sin. Sometimes that's the problem. But my friends, if you've been around this thing called the Christian faith long enough, you may have experienced another problem. And here it is. You may right now Know it up here. But still, after years, you're struggling with it down here. You know that Christ has offered forgiveness, and yet you feel like you can't release your own sin. I don't mean because you repeat it, although we often do. I mean because you can't release it. You can't truly say, I accept your forgiveness, dear Lord Jesus. You're still trying to earn your way. You're still trying to prove that you're better than you think you are. Or you're still just absolutely weighed down by guilt because you think whatever you did really cannot be forgiven. The lesson of this story is that the Lord, the universe stands face to face with you as he did with that woman and he says, you're forgiven. Did you hear me? You're forgiven. I heard a story once of a man who had been a Christian for quite a long time. But he struggled with this notion of forgiveness. And he went to um, his spiritual mentor who happened to be a pastor and said, I, it's a sin in my past. It's not my sin today, but it's something I just, it haunts me. It's at every corner. I can't help myself. I can't forgive myself. And the pastor uh, said to him, 
You know, there's a number of images in Scripture about forgiveness. As far as the East is from the West. There's another one. It's just to wipe away. And he looked at this man and he said, You're forgiven? Can you accept that? You know what the man's response was? Probably about what mine would have been or yours would have been. His response was, I think so, but that's going to be so hard. The pastor went on to talk quietly and counsel this particular man. And unexpectedly, he stopped again and he looked at the man and he said, You're forgiven? Can you accept that? And the man swallowed and he said, Yes, I can. He said at that moment, after years, a wave of grace washed over me that I'd never experienced before. For what reason then, I don't know. But I received fully the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness requires acceptance. Is it just up here? Or have you said, yes, I receive your forgiveness. You know, I'm not big on gimmicks and stuff. I mean, when's the last time I used a whiteboard? Never. Um, but it's communion Sunday. And in a few minutes, you're going to walk forward and receive the body and blood of Christ at three different places. And as you do, I want you to remember what we've talked about. And as you receive the body and blood of Christ, which is the most remarkable demonstration of forgiveness, I want you to look at that erase board. And I want you to say, Lord Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have been gracious to us in the sending of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. You've been gracious to us in giving us the words of Scripture, and you've been gracious to us, Lord, over and over and over again with your patience. You teach us the same lessons. You do it in different ways. It comes from different sources. And then every once in a while, an unexpected, amazing grace hits us. And so, Lord, I pray that today that will be true. For people who are here struggling with accepting your forgiveness. There's nothing, Lord, that defines the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ 
more than this? There's nothing that demonstrates the cross more fully than this. So as we uh, approach communion, we pray that you will allow that wave of grace to wash over our sins. That wave of grace which allows us to accept your forgiveness and to go and to live a new life. And we'll thank you for what you do. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, who forgives us of our sins. Amen.